Bedrosian throws to Sandberg, and the pitch is grounded to second base. Thompson has it, throws to first. It's over. 27 years of waiting have come to an end. The Giants have won the pennant. All right, Brad, another episode of Thompson to Clark here. And uh, I had the opportunity to talk to KMBR producer and sound engineer Darren Chan the other day. So we're going to play that interview that I did with him. We'll play it late in the show and then maybe we'll we'll, we'll circle back and uh, and end the show. But uh, that was a, that was a fun show, a fun interview for me because Darren and I are both like old school KMBR nerds from when we were younger um, and then, uh, so, so basically that is to say that interview will sort of be the, the main part of today's show, but you and I, we still have a few things to talk about, but we don't, we don't have to dig too deep today. We will get a little bit of a break. We don't, we don't have to go for the full hour. We'll go, we'll go a hard 30. It's a uh, <clears throat> late January baseball talk. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Like, like, like in between the uh, AFC NFC championship game and Super Bowl, that lull where nothing is happening. <laughs> I mean, there are some things. There are actually some, some, some kind of depressing news yeah. to talk about today. A couple of things, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's still baseball. There's still things happening. Yeah, I mean, I think we'd be hard pressed to uh, find stuff to talk about if we recorded more than once a week. But (laughs) and and then what's insane is when we start when the season starts, you and I are like, oh, my God, like we have way too much stuff to talk about. How do we do this in one show? Well, the hard part is when we do a lot of times we record these on Mondays. So then we've got to go back like six or seven games worth of stuff to talk yeah. about, like two or three series sometimes, which is a lot, but you know, it's been beaten to death at that point. So it's our views on it and, and how we feel about things. So, which is probably more important than anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we do have to start the show for, it seems like we've been doing this uh, more often lately and I don't know what the reason is, but uh, Hank Aaron passed away, which you know he what a legend and it's not like one of the you know it's not a shocking thing like when kobe bryant passed away because he he passed away in an accident and he was so young hank hank is in his you know he's in his mid to late 80s but still like the magnitude the gravity of someone like hank aaron i it just felt like like how's this possible like like people like hank aaron don't die like what's going on so i was pretty depressed for that morning when i heard the news well and he just i think it was just about a month ago in december he did an interview on mlb network and i happened to catch it at the time it was on and i mean it looked fantastic and sounded great and then i i want to say it was about three four weeks ago he got his um he got his first shot of his covid vaccine right and uh and this has nothing to do with the covid vaccines so, so don't don't anybody get that in your head. That's not that's not why he passed away. He passed away peacefully in his sleep is the last thing we heard. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was you know he was doing good and what was eighty six years old. So yeah. not uh, you know not young, but in today's standard, that's not uh, that's not very old. That's not super old. So you know, well, I think people you know people are living longer and longer. Um, when 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 you and I were younger, like if someone lived past.
past their mid, you know, their mid seventies, you're like, Oh, like they lived a pretty long life. And now it feels like if they die before 90, it's like, Oh my God, I can't believe they didn't get to 90. Yeah. But, um, I think the, I think the interesting thing, at least for the giants perspective of things is when I was growing up, my dad, he just constantly, you know, since I was a kid, you know, Willie Mays, Willie Mays, Willie Mays, Willie Mays. And then my next door neighbor, he was a Hank Aaron guy. So it was like, those were the two guys, like, you know, obviously Willie Mays played for the Giants, so I would hold him a little bit higher, but it would be Mays and Aaron before Babe Ruth and before Mantle and before DiMaggio. It would always be those two for me. Uh, so, you know, that's my my memory of Hank is that Hank and Willie were on par with each other as, you know, maybe the two greatest baseball players ever. And uh, just, yeah, I can't, it's just, I think the thing that also makes me wonder is, you know, we're in this pandemic. Uh, I don't know if what, what the numbers are. I'm sure in five years there will be a study about, you know, when people stopped doing the things that they loved and they were being responsible that, you know, maybe this sort of affected uh, their their livelihood and, and their, you know, they, it, it may have cut short a, a couple of years of their lives or something like maybe we'll hear something like that. But, you know, still, I look at it as like, you know, what 86 is great. He had a great life. He dealt with some really horrific stuff chasing that home run record. Um, but coming out of it, like everything was classy. Like even when bonds passed him, right. And there was every reason for him to deny bonds that record. And he never did it. And he was so classy about dealing with that situation. And, uh, you know, every time Hank spoke, you were like, okay, you know, there's something (laughs) important to listen to here. He's not someone who's constantly talking. So those are the things that I remember about him. Well, and then him and, and, and Bud Selig being best friends. I mean, who would have, thought something like that would happen as well. Um, you know, they just latched on to each other and became best of friends. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. Now growing up, my dad was not a, um, not necessarily a sports fan. He would watch sports, but I, I, I don't think he had any favorite players. I don't think he had a favorite team. I still don't think he does. I, he just, you know, he likes to see the Niners win. He likes to see the Giants win. And then that's pretty much what it comes down to. Um, so growing up for me, I didn't have that person to talk about former players and, and what they meant to the game and, and uh, you know, what what they meant to the nation and, you know, baseball fans growing up. So so growing up, I had to discover a lot of these players on my own. I mean, I've got I, I'm still I'm in my den right now and I'm looking over in the corner and I still have these baseball encyclopedias of players mm-hmm. that, that I, I still haven't gotten rid of. Uh, I've got a book that's got like the top at 200 baseball players of all time. And I've got a Bob Feller signature in there. Cause I met him at uh, municipal stadium one day when, uh, at a San Jose giants game, he was there signing autographs. Um, but you know, these types of players, I had to discover and figure them out on my own. And one of those, and, and, and when you become a baseball fan, especially our era it, numbers, right? That is that is sacred in baseball. Mm-hmm. There's numbers, there's milestones that football is like smash mouth. And remember this guy and, you know, Ronnie Lott smashed his finger, cut off his pinky, kept playing, <laughs> you know, that type of stuff. But you don't think about it as numbers and, and, and there really aren't like the, the all time touchdown. I, 
I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's, numbers in football are kind of meaningless. Like because yeah, the, the, not only are they uh, meaningless to like for historic reasons because the game has changed so much, but how many times this year did Tom Brady? break Drew Brees' record, and then Drew Brees would break Tom Brady's record for, what is it, for passing yards, right? Yeah, I don't even pay attention. Yeah. They're just going to go back and forth, and then not not anymore. Now Tom Brady's probably going to play again next year and keep doing that. But when you think about baseball, you think about numbers. 755, when we were growing up, was the sacred number. I mean, that was like, who's going to hit 755 home runs in their career? The longevity... The amount of home runs you have to hit per year, the amount of times you have to avoid injury. I mean, growing up, we were thinking, my God, there's no possible way. And then it happened in our lifetime. Dramatic pause. Is it legit? I don't know. I mean, you know, that's for debates to go on for years and years. But that 755 will always be such a sacred number, always tied to Hank Aaron. And it will always be like the pinnacle of baseball when it comes down to it. Yeah. So we're going to pour one out to Hank. And the way that we're going to pour it out is we're going to talk about what we're imbibing tonight for this show. Well, I tried something. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know if I like it a whole lot. It's good. Um, I like old fashions, but I don't like sugar, so mm-hmm. I don't drink them very often. So I, I went ahead and I hopped on YouTube and I searched for like, uh, you know, sugarless uh, old fashioned recipes. So I found a couple of like Kato ones. I'm, I don't do Kato, but it's sugarless and sugar free. So I thought, well, I'll give it a try. Wait, um, do you mean, do you mean the diet or do you mean, uh, OJ's the, friend? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, oh, no, no, not that Kato. <laughs> I was, I, what was the, uh, br- br- didn't Bruce Lee play? Uh, oh, that's a right. <laughs> <laughs> he did that, that Kato. Um, okay. Cause I think uh, it's pronounced Keto. Keto. Yeah. Well, keto. sorry. Yeah. Keto. <laughs> <laughs> Did I blow that one? Uh, see, I told you I'm not keto. I don't do keto, so I don't even know how to say it. Keto, yeah, that was a uh, uh, the Green Hornet, right? There you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the Green Hornet and keto, and then Kato Kalen, the famous mm-hmm. Kato Kalen from the nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but keto, <clears throat> so I went ahead and made an old fashioned. An old fashioned, if you don't know, is like a sugar cube. Or like a tablespoon of sugar with uh, some some Angostura bitters dashed in enough to cover that sugar. Then you muddle it really well till it becomes like a paste almost. Then you put two ounces of, of any kind of bourbon, rye, what, whatever you want on top of it. Uh, mix it in with some ice. Strain it out, throw in a couple more ice cubes. And then you take a, a wedge of orange, like an orange... Um, uh, what do you call it? Like the rind. And then you kind of just kind of muddle it in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did it and, and a recipe I found said you can use like a sweetener. So I tried like a packet of stevia. Um, it's good. I think I would go with a half a packet of stevia next time. Mm-hmm. Cause a full packet of stevia can be a little strong. Um, but it's got that orange. It's got that sweetness. It's got that bourbon kick to it. Very simple drink to make. Um, and I, and I, uh, I don't know. I told you earlier, it's it's 27 degrees right now outside. Uh, we got about anywhere between like six and 10 inches of snow today. And I shoveled the neighborhood because in our cul-de-sac, there's four houses. We are the young bucks here. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm 47 and I am by far at least 30 years younger than the uh, uh, next youngest person in this cul-de-sac. So I don't like them to go out and shovel their sidewalks. I like to take care of that. So uh, I did my workout this morning, ran out there, shoveled everybody's driveways. My back nice. is screaming. So I thought I need an old fashioned for yeah. days. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a good pick. Um, so it's funny because you went keto and I generally or try try and do a, try and do everything keto, and so I was at the grocery store picking up groceries for the week, and uh, usually I just you know I'll, I'll walk by the the section of uh, of all the spirits, and if anything look is anything's on sale or anything catches my eye, even if I don't need anything, I may just grab it just because, and so I was uh, thinking about the coffee drink that I was trying to make. And I was like, oh, I wonder if there's any like coffee that they kind of mix together that is not really high in sugar and no, pretty much everything when it comes to spirits and stuff in a can, like it, it's pretty high in sugar. So like, okay, I won't get it. And then I was looking for um, like whiskey, you know, how like they have these, uh, these like drinks that are mixed in the can and like, uh, Oh yeah. Whatever, whatever they are. But I, I, I don't want like those sugary ones. I want like a whiskey version like that, that you just kind of sit with, you know, may, maybe it's got some, uh, some sparkling water and some whiskey and maybe a different flavor in there, but nope, didn't have any of those either. It's like, ah, oh, bummer. So what I did spot is a peanut butter whiskey. Hmm. And I thought, Hmm, I think I've heard of that. Maybe I'll put that in my coffee and I imagine that peanut buttery taste with the coffee taste probably actually be pretty tasty. And so I did it. And today uh, I you know, went to Starbucks, walked to Starbucks on my walk, got an Americano, walked back, had a few hits of it, but just put it in the refrigerator. And then right before we did the show, I mixed the whiskey in it. Now, the reason why I mentioned the keto thing is because this thing is not keto. <laughs> no. It is so sweet. I was like, oh my God. I don't I don't buy whiskey to like get a sweet tooth out of it. Right. You know? I was like, oh my gosh, this thing is has so has to have so much sugar and natural flavors in it. So, you know, I'll I'll, I'll suck it down just because we're doing this, but yeah, I don't think I'm gonna buy that one next time. So so now your coffee drink, okay. We we do this now it's after five o'clock. Yes. Are you drinking like like full calf? Yes. Full caffeinated drinks after five o'clock. Yes. And no issues sleeping. But you don't go to bed early. Well, I'll probably like, I'll, I'll try, I'll probably try to go to bed about, I would say 1130 would kind of be the target. Jesus. Uh, I'm so old. That sounds like <laughs> the next day to me, 1130. I mean, I'll do that, you know, Friday, Saturday nights, midnight. Yeah. 1230. No problem. If I try to do 1130 during the week, I'm done. Like, well, the rest I'm of the sure week. you have to wake up way earlier than I do. Well, today was 530. So when the kids are in school, although today we had a, a snow delay. So actually we, we got up at 630. When the kids are in school and I have to drive them to school, it's 530. When the kids are home, it's 630. So, yeah, I don't know. You wake up at that same time. No, I, I don't. I, oh, okay. I don't usually if I'm up before eight for work uh, right now during the pandemic, because I, I mean, I just wake up 
and I get a cup of coffee and I just go right to my computer and I'm starting my day. Oh, okay. So that's even before showering. That's even before <laughs> really like brushing my teeth. Like I'll I just, do that too because I like to work out at lunchtime. So yeah, I won't yeah. shower when I get up, especially working from home. Yep. I'll do the same thing. I'll roll out of bed. Sometimes I'll fire up the PS5. I'll get in a little road to the show, MLB. I'll I'll take some people deep and then I'll go get my <laughs> coffee and I'll come to, and I'll come and I'll start working. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm up, you know, sort of just, and, and my day doesn't really need to start super early though. You know, if it does, then I'll go to bed a little bit earlier, but yeah, like I, I can usually drink coffee into the evening and it doesn't affect me. If it, it, like, if I feel that it does affect me, I'll pull back a little bit, but I can usually drink coffee, you know, into like six or seven at night and I can't not have any issues. See, and I'll make it a lot of times in my last coffee, I'll make it at about three o'clock, finish at about four, mm-hmm. four thirty, and then, I, and then I'm okay. My wife, Ooh, you can't pass two o'clock. Wow. No coffee. Yeah. You know, or else she'll be laying there reading the Kindle <laughs> for five hours. So. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, let, let's talk a little bit there. I mean, there's a few things to talk about here. Uh, Larry Bear Larry Bear sent an email to Giants fans today as it relates to spring training and the start of the season. What did he say in that email? Well, it, you know, he came across a bunch of things and, and uh, a lot of if you're a fan of the Giants and you subscri- subscribe to their mail list, you probably have received this email. Uh, there are a lot of good nuggets in there. Um, also, a lot of, you know, hey, we're being safe. We're doing everything we can. Some things I took out of it. Um Pitchers and catchers are supposed to report on February 15th. That's set in stone. Well, not set in stone, but that is penciled in as of this moment. Uh, April 1st, season opens in Seattle. That's what they're still aiming for, um, which is still blows my mind that we're yeah. opening the season in an American League West ballpark. But whatever. Again, like I said on the last show, I think it was get rid of interleague play and I'm happy. Uh, you could do anything else to baseball and I'm fine, but just get rid of interleague play. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really not up to them. It's up to the city and the County of San Francisco. The public health officials have to, they're, they're, they're kind of the ultimate deciders on, um, if they're going to have fans in the ballpark. Um, but that kind of leads us before we get into the rest of that email, because it, it pertains to, if the season happens on time and everything is going the way it should, and they're hoping for it to go, let's kind of touch on the email or the letter that was sent today from, uh, who was it? Uh, Bridget, uh, Binsbacher. Um, she is in charge of the cactus league down in Arizona. And she asked, uh, Manfred to delay the Cactus League because Maricopa County, one of the biggest counties in Arizona, uh, has one of the highest infection rates right now. And we're looking at three weeks from now, pitchers and catchers are going to start reporting. So she and the rest of the board, uh, I think this also includes um, some of the tribal uh, commissions uh, down in Arizona. They've decided we don't want that many people here right now. We're already having enough problems. So they're basically saying to Manfred, can you make this uh, kind of delay out a little bit? But uh, like you and I were talking about earlier, this is, this is between the MLBPA and, 
and the players or MLBPA, which is the players association and the league. And they're just not talking right now. Yep. Yep. They're not, they're not getting along. This is why we don't know about the DH, (laughs) you know, this is why (laughs) like certain things don't seem it doesn't seem to be cohesive. And it's because I, I think if, if I'm remembering this correctly, because I read an article uh, by Ken Rosenthal in The Athletic, but I think it stemmed from, I don't want to misquote the article. So I'll just say, from what I can remember, the player's side of things had said, can we start a little later and maybe work with the money as far as if they miss certain games, maybe they don't lose all of it. Maybe they only like, you know, the, obviously everything's about money um, and salaries and, and everything. So, and then the league was like, or the owners were like, Nope, no deal. <laughs> and so then like, literally they both just were like, okay, like we don't need to talk right now. And they, yeah. and they're, and they're kind of uh, at an impasse. So frustrating because that's where the leadership kind of comes in and goes, Hey guys, you know, we got to do this now, the future of the league, the future of the sport. You know, we can provide some entertainment for these fans. Let's get through this season. And then next year, the fans are going to want to come back because they miss live baseball. We'll do way more in, uh, you know, in, in attendance. If, if people feel safe, let's think about ways to make our parks feel safe. Let's make figure out a way to make, you know, post vaccine everything feels safe for fans to come back and that should be the focus right it's like 2021 let's get through this thing as uh, as good as we can and let's focus on 2022 because that's maybe when we feel like the fans will be able to come back and they'll come back strong but nope it's just like all right (laughs) yeah season starting national league doesn't really know what the rules are going to be uh we have a spring training possible situation with arizona and florida the two areas where covid is uh really 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 bad arizona i think has the worst uh the worst depending on what statistic you want to use like arizona's right now is like the worst place so i mean I, i as a fan you and I were talking, I think it was last week, about how great that feeling of spring training is and sort of like, oh, we can't wait till spring training starts and, you know, getting the news about spring, spring training when we were young. Yeah. But to me, if there is real worry about how things are going, like, yeah, you uh, like for me, selfishly, postpone it. You can even postpone the beginning of the season a little bit, like just whatever is the best and safest situation. But I don't even know if both sides are looking at it that way. I think both sides may be looking at it from uh, mostly the monetary perspective, which I'm not sure if that's the way to to look at it. Well, and... I don't know how you feel, but, but I feel like all the news today, like I was so optimistic yesterday about baseball. And then the news today, it's like that bandaid was ripped off and that open wound was just there. The, the MLBPA and the league 
just do not get along. And I, I thought, you know, in my heart, I thought last year, them coming to a conclusion that, well, going forward, maybe now they have, you know, that once they got that season underway in 2020 and they finished it and the Dodgers won their fake championship, um, <laughs> <laughs> had to throw that in there, uh, that, that coming this year, you know, they'd be a little more cohesive and things would get together, but it just brings up all the bad memories of the negotiations from last year. Uh, Buster only tweeted out uh, just today, about a half hour ago from the time we're recording this, he said, as the poor labor relations continue in baseball, I've heard a lot of worried rank and file staff and players asking who is looking out for the game. Mm-hmm. And that exactly hurts. what I was just talking about. Exactly. And that hurts. I mean, because as a fan, you're thinking, my God, what is going on with our game? Our game has turned from being sluggers hitting home runs, that 755 number, the, uh, you know, just guys going out and putting the bat on the ball. Uh, you know, what is it? Bull Durham, you hit the ball, you catch the ball, you throw the ball. Uh, that's it. That's, mm-hmm. that's what the game was. Now it's, uh, what's your launch angle? What's your uh, spin rate? What's your, this, what's your, that. And then, and then throw in on top of it, the MLBPA hates the owners and hates MLB and they fight each other. And now it's like, well, what's happened to our game? And, 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 uh, you know, maybe we can talk about this on the next uh, on the next show we could dive into this a little bit more but Theo Epstein left the Cubs he's now working for Major League Baseball and he yeah. said I want to bring baseball back I want to bring the fans back into baseball uh not num- not spin rate not uh, launch angle not this not that um I was part of the problem with that type of stuff I want to fix that I want to see how I can bring interest back for the fans and not think about the analytics so much. But you have to put that aside and say, how about we get our owners and the players to just agree on something? Um, Who's right? Who's wrong? I don't know. I mean, it's going to be a while probably before we figure out, uh, you know, we have a whole season to go of this, right? I mean, we got, we've got a whole season to go before this contract ends. And then once that is over, then it's just madness from there trying to, uh, are we going to have a lockout, a strike next year? Who knows? I mean, there's, there's a long road ahead of us at this point. Well, so then I guess, you know, who is to blame? Like I, I may be trying to simplify it here and just saying, ah, you know, Manafred, like, you know, he's the worst, but, but really, really (laughs) (laughs) but he is the, uh, he works for the owners, right? So, so first and foremost, he works for the owners. This is just like, uh, the the guy, what's the guy, uh, Roger Goodell, the guy who runs the NFL. Yeah. He is the ultimate butler for the owners. Sure. And that's just what he is. He is he is he makes sure that they get their way on stuff. And so what is Manafred's role? I, his he, he's he's worked similarly for the the owners. Um, but then also, is there a gracefulness or a nuance that he is supposed to have to help out with the player side? And this is where um, Adam Silver, the NBA owner, I think where he excels is that he understands that often 
uh, the uh, the conversation, just having the conversation and uh, looking for resolution is what generally draws the two sides together. Like owners, you're not going to get everything. Players, you're not going to get everything. But let's work together and try to find, you know, the the middle ground. And it feels like with uh, with Manifred, there's always some ulterior motive that. Okay, if we give you guys this, well, guess what? We got to put the DH in. Like, that's what we get. And there's always like, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't even feel like compromise. It feels like, well, since you guys did this, we're going to punish you and give you this, which you don't want. And that isn't, you know, that's never compromise, you know, works in, in a graceful way. I think it doesn't work in this punishment style. So that's what I don't like about it. And uh, I hope that they can figure out what's best for not only for the game, but what's best for the safety. Because look, an owner can be like, look, nope, we're starting April 4th. But guess what? You're not playing. (laughs) You don't have to umpire. You're not in the booth. You're not, you know, um, you don't work at the ballpark. So you are not risking your health in any of this. And you do have to think with that mindset. I'm not saying that the owners are are thinking that way, but I'm just saying, yeah, from my perspective, it's like, let's think of these other things first, including the players. And look, the players get paid a lot of money. I think they earned a lot of that money last year going out there and risking their health and, and playing that season in maybe not such great circumstances. I mean, you're you're 100 percent right on that. And and should they be rewarded this year? I mean, maybe the the owners could back in and say, all right, look, we you know, you guys went out, risked everything. We cut your pay. We did the uh, prorated uh, salary and everything else. Um this year, I mean, it, it's been reported, you know, uh, by Ken Rosenthal on The Athletic. He said the players want 162 games and they want to get paid for 162 games. And like you hit on earlier, uh, say they start a month later, right? Uh, they've asked the owners, are, are you willing to go? A, and we start a month later. Are you willing to go a month later? We'll go into November. That's fine. Uh, you know, we'll freeze our asses off out there in the <laughs> World Series and, you know, 42 degrees and it's not going to be Boston. But, you, you know, we've had some cold <laughs> World Series in Boston before and they've, you know, freezing hands and everything else when you're trying to hit the ball. It's not fun, but they're willing to do it. They want to get the 162 games. And, and I mean, really, when it comes down to it, that's going to help everybody, because if you start, say, a month later, Mm, you get more vaccines in people, you get some lower numbers, maybe there's a good chance you're going to get more players or more, uh, more fans in the stands. And that's what the owners want. The owners just played, you know, a 60 game season with no fans. Yeah. So they're, they, they lost a ton of money, but the players lost you know, a hundred and two games worth of money, uh, which is a lot of money for them. Um, you know, cause careers are short. Some of these guys, 
they're not going to play past four seasons. And so they're going to make their money now and then they're going to go do their thing afterwards. But they, you know, to have that money to be able to play the game, secure their family for the rest of their lives. Uh, that means a lot to them. And, and I understand that. And a lot of people say, well, they make so much money and then, you know, but these guys, a lot of these guys come up and, and get a cup of coffee in the bigs and they make a little bit of chunk of change. And then they get, you know, if they're smart, they put that away. So, I mean, yeah, like you said, you need an arbitrator. You need you need you need the the commissioner to be an arbitrator, to be a judge, and say, mm-hmm. "Let's sit together. I'll sit at the head of the table. I'm not going to take sides, but I want to see both sides, yeah. and I want to try to say, owners, this is what the you know the players are giving up." And this is what you're giving up. So now we're both giving up something. So I think we have a deal here, but uh, we just don't have that on major league baseball right now. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to be a story that we're going to be probably talking about until the beginning of spring training. So we'll table this, we'll shelve it for now, and we'll quickly talk about uh, some rumors for the Giants roster here. And then we'll send it to the interview with Darren before we, we wrap up the show. But uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the two players, two outfielders who were rumored? I think I forget the the writer. Was it Susan Slusser? Uh, I think I believe had, so. Yeah, had had uh, tweeted that uh, Eddie Rosario and Jackie Bradley Jr. were kind of uh, on the radar of the Giants, and they both have their positives and negatives. Um, Jackie Bradley Jr. really good defensive player, but he you know he can he can hit. 235 for a season for you. And on the flip side, Rosario showed some power last year, had a really good offensive season, but is probably not going to win a gold glove for you. So what what were your (laughs) thoughts on being linked to both of those guys? You know, and these guys have been kicked around. These names have been kicked around for a while now. Um, Both left-handers, Giants, it's it's no surprise. Giants have been looking for a uh, left-handed bat, uh, somebody they can platoon, somebody they can... um, uh, start regularly. I like Rosario because he can play all three uh, outfield positions. Um, you know, he hit 267 last year. His OPS was 782, uh, 27 home runs, 90 ribs. Um, no, I'm sorry. 13 home runs, 42 ribs. Uh, that was the projection on a full season would have been. Uh, yeah, season before he was 32 and 109. Exactly. So 13 home runs, 42 RBIs. I think that translates to 27 and 90. Um, but he did, you know, he had the OPS of 792 last year. Um, you know, that, that that's a guy, again, left-hander could play all three positions. That's the Giants' new MO. Guys you can plug in all over the place. And I say it's their new MO, but really Bochi was doing that. That was in style with Bochi, right? For, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 2000. So, I mean, he was doing those things, um, playing the hot hand, moving guys all over the place. Um, I like Rosario. I'd rather have Rosario than Jackie Bradley Jr.'s 234 average. I don't, <laughs> I don't want that. Um, you know, Rosario is going to cost a chunk of change. He's 28 years old. He's going to be playing as a 29-year-old. Can you get him on, on a one-year deal? I don't know if you can get a guy like that on a one-year deal, so it's probably going to be a multi-year deal, like a, a, a Wilmer Flores type of deal. Um, but of those two guys, I, I would go Rosario for sure. Um, I, I would be super amped up about that signing. I was just looking at 
um, uh, Jackie Bradley Jr.'s stats last year because, like you said, the uh, the the historical number is that he's like a career two thirty nine hitter, but in two thousand and twenty. In 55 games, so only 191 ABs, hit 283, 364 on base, and 450 slugging. He's hit seven home runs. And so you kind of wonder, okay, what? who is Bradley? He's going to strike out a lot no matter what. But who really is he? And so the only... like. I, you know, the, you can look at the advanced stats, and and maybe you'll find something like his uh, his BABIP, B A B I P, the batting average on balls in play was at an absolute career high. So some of that may simply be luck, right? It, it, it just it, that's just may would it be? That's not who he is. Yeah. Uh, possibly, definitely, possibly. The other stat that when I was looking at this, and I don't even really know how to measure this, but it's the ground outs versus the flyouts ratio. I would, ha- I want to look into this number because historically, he's like more in the range of one one point three two. So I, my guess is that it's one ground out per. 1.73 air out. So I, I, what, what I'm trying to figure out, and I, I'm probably misreading that statistic, is it sounds like he was maybe getting the ball up in the air a little bit more. And if that is the case, then we go back to what you were talking about earlier with launch angle and stuff like that, is he may have adapted to a, a different way of hitting to give himself better opportunities to... to, to uh, for power. And so that could all, I don't know if that fully explains the 343 BABIP. You know what? You know, I have a friend that we should bring on this podcast. Uh, I think he writes for, gosh, does he write for Baseball America? I'll, I'll look it up. And okay. But he, he's a guy who I think would be really fun to bring on uh, because. He, you know, he understands this stuff that you and I are like, we know enough about it to where if we're in a conversation, we could go, oh, yeah, totally yeah. get that. Oh, yeah. But not enough. I to love really me some BABIP. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he, no, he writes for a baseball prospectus. Oh, okay. Um, oh, yeah. That's a good so one. his name is uh, Jarrett, Seid- Jarrett Seidler. See, there's Seidler. I've actually hung out with him uh, a time or two. But um, I would love to bring him on to like help him explain like yes. here's the the <laughs> analytics for dummies conversation that we're going to have. I would love that. I, that would be fantastic. I, I've got a lot of questions because a lot of these stats, I want to know what FIP really means. I want to know what <laughs> BABIP really means. And I do because that's where we're at now. And it helps to kind of understand the game a little bit better. Yeah. And then when we sign guys and people on Twitter go, ah, this guy's garbage. Yeah. I'd love to hop in with the, well, his fit this year or last year was uh, this, and this means this. So I, yeah. I want to be that guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I was, I'm trying to look like, um, you know, cause uh, the, uh, just the internet in general is so great with this kind of stuff, yeah. but I'm like, okay, I understand with the ground out 
air out stat means but what is a good number <laughs> like who, yeah like what is <laughs> what is a good ratio yeah. what do we want to see you know what, where uh, what that means so well and also when you see a number like that like a like a, you know i tried to delve into fip a little bit over the weekend um and F- and fip is uh you're probably better off telling uh, people what that is that's uh fielder uh fielding independent, independent pitching Fielding independent pitching. So the the <clears throat> what you're looking for in FIP is you're looking for a pitcher that has the uh, like the league average FIP. And again, how do you get that? I mean, it's it's it basically takes out like uh, um, you know how well are they at preventing uh, home runs, walks, mm-hmm. uh, hits. Uh, so it's all of that. But again. I want to know the background behind that. Like, yeah. w- like, it, what does that exactly mean? How do you take those things out of the equation? How do you decide that a pitcher has taken those things out of the equation? And when do you come up with FIPS? So that that's what I want to know. I think the I think the idea behind that statistic was to try and adjust for, or or just solely take away good defense versus bad defense. Okay. Like what are the outcomes that the pitcher can control? So pitcher can control strikeouts. Pitchers can control walks. Pitcher can control wildness. So hit by pitches and they sort of control the home runs. But let's say, uh, you know, there's a pop-up and the three outfielders collide and you can't really give them an error. Yeah. Hard play. And that's True. a single. So is that the... That would have been an out. On a good defensive team, that's an out. On a bad defensive team, that's a hit. So let's try and uh, not not allow those instances into this number. So I think that's what yeah. they're getting at. They're trying to figure out on all the things that this pitcher can control, what, what, it, what would his ERA be? And so, you know, that's how you can look at it. Okay. And that makes sense. Yep. I like that. All right. So the other name, and we had talked about this person, I don't know, probably two months ago, uh, as far as the Giants being tied to uh, to him as well, Jake Odorizzi. Yeah, and that, this is the same old rumor, and Odorizzi's been hanging around. A lot of teams are looking at, at him, unfortunately. So the rumor is his price is going to be pretty pretty up there. So the chances of, uh, of us signing Odorizzi is probably pretty slim. Um, of course, he's another right-handed starter. I don't know if we need another right-handed starter at this mm-hmm. point, uh, but if you can get him on a good deal, sure, why not? You know, if he wants to come to us for one year at a good deal, uh, again, the reputation that we are um, gaining as an organization with Brian Bannister and the rest of the crew, um, and taking these uh, in the works pitchers, and and when I say the name Jake Odorizzi, people go, "Well, this guy was an all star in 2019." What are you talking about? You know, a, a, a reclamation project. But he was he was 15 and seven in 2019, uh, 30 starts, 3.51 ERA, uh, which isn't fantastic. Um, but, you know, in Minnesota with that offense, you're going to get a lot of wins. Uh, so it translated well. Uh, his FIP was 3.36, so a little bit lower than his ERA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had a little bit of tough luck in there. Uh, but then it, then last year, he had some injuries, only played in four games, uh, started four games, and at a 6.59 ERA. And now he's a free agent at 30 years old. So that is a reclamation project. That is what the Giants are taking on right now. They are not in the 100% you know, sign guys long-term 
win for the next decade mode is still not quite there yet. So it makes sense. But with so many other teams saying, you know what, we could take this guy. And if he ends up being 2019 Odorizzi, we can put him in the four or five slot and he's going to be like, uh, uh, you know, fantastic find for us. So that might drive up the price a little bit. If the Yankees decide, Hey, we need a fifth starter and we can give him, I don't know, say 14, 15, 16 million. The giants are going to be out on that. Yeah. I I would assume. Uh, so we'll see where that one goes, but his name keeps popping up. He's still hanging out there. Uh, three weeks till pitchers and catchers report. That doesn't mean anything because in the couple of years past, uh, not, not including last year because of COVID, but two years, you know, 19, 18, um, guys were signing when spring training started. Guys were signing when spring training was a week in. So that, that's not too true to what's going to happen. But pitchers, you would think pitchers would want to sign earlier to get with the staffs, uh, get their pitches in and everything else. So, All right, so let's throw it to the interview that I did with Darren Chan earlier, uh, talking about KMBR, talking about old giant stuff, talking about trying to produce and engineer a show, a baseball game during the pandemic and all the things that Darren had to do, including like trying to figure out how to create sound when there's no fans (laughs) in attendance. It was actually like... It was, it was pretty nuts, all the stuff that he did. So let's listen to that interview, and Brad and I will be back to wrap up the show. All right, I want to welcome Darren Chan, KMBR Giants uh, sound engineer. And Darren, I was looking at your Twitter page, so you actually list two jobs. You list radio producer, front slash, Engineer, and from my understanding, when I I was at KMBR a long time ago, and you know had a cup of coffee there, but those are like two different jobs, and so I was just wondering, like, you know, are are you doing two things, or it's sort of like you have to combine your roles because of what you do for the Giants and KMBR? Like, how how did explain the 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 job title to me? Well, what happened was the job originally started years back, decades back, probably as more of an engineering job around baseball. There was always an on-site technical person to help out the, the announcers. And I think what happened was over the years, that job morphed into being a producer as broadcast got a lot more complex. I, th- I think when I was growing up, probably listening to games on the 80s, the engineer was in charge of setting up the mics and recording the games on cassette and flipping highlights, and that was generally it, and grabbing uh, maybe scores off the off a sports sticker and giving it to the announcers. And as the years progressed, uh, sales and sponsorship got a lot more detailed and complicated, uh, and it got more uh, robust, as you could say, for, for good reasons. Um, you know, baseball is selling really well on the radio, and, and the producer's role, a part of the job, became more than just technical. It, was, it became a part of the job where you were not only supplying the announcers with uh, outside information from all the other things that were going around Major League Baseball, but um, the, the the sales and sponsorship part of it, live reads during a game, are 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 charged at a premium to to a lot of sponsors from around the country, and the uh, and sponsors pay top dollar for an announcer to read a, a tagline on the air during a game. So, it became part of that as as being a producer and the producer aspect of it too. Also started you know producing things with the pregame show and the postgame show, as 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 baseball broadcast started expanding their their coverage 
I think I, I, when growing up, it was it was always as, as a Giants fan, it, you would listen to maybe a thirty minute pregame show, maybe, and then after the game, it was highlights and maybe out of town scores, and then next thing you know, it was Sports Phone sixty eight on KMBR. Now it's it's like it's it's completely different. It's there's so many added features and elements. Uh, it, for us, it's you know it was it was years of the Bruce Bochy show, uh, mm-hmm. twenty minutes before first pitch of every game, and thirty minutes before that was the Kruk and Kipe show. Now both those shows have to be pre-produced, uh, so not only do you have to uh, get the technical aspects of it down together, but the uh, the production part of it too, and those have to be edited, and timed out, and and put together. So the role has expanded over the years from from just an engineer to what we call the producer engineer, and. Um, you know, of, of the 30 baseball teams, the, our last count was there are 18 of us around the country that do this full time where we do it, all the home games for our respective teams and we travel on the road as well. So it's kind of a unique job and it's a unique position. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun doing it and it's it's a one of a kind job. And uh, I'm now entering my 20th, 21st year of doing it. Uh, so it's 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 been it's been a fun ride. So. Your history with the Giants goes back to being a kid, being a, being a fan, and but your career took you away from this area. Where where did you go uh, once you started your career, and then when did you come back this way? Well, I started as an intern at KMBR back in October of 1990, and oh, wow. my first day, yeah, can you believe that? You would, my yeah, first... you would have predated me like seven <laughs> years or something. Just a, yeah, <laughs> I mean, when I started at KMBR, it was not a uh, it was not a full-time sports station. The only sports yeah. shows at the time were Sports Page 68 with Gene Washington from 4 to 6 in the afternoon, and then Ralph Barbieri from 6 to 8 or 6 to 9. I can't recall. And that's obviously if Giants baseball wasn't on at night. And that and was, if before, there was and he replaced uh, Dave Newhouse. Yeah, correct. And then, yeah, it was Dave, Dave Newhouse was doing Sports Phone. And then after, if, if there was a Giants game at night, Sports Phone would come on until midnight. So you would, you would definitely have sports programming at night. But all throughout the day, KBR, you know, was doing general talk shows with, you know, Peter B. Collins and Leo Laporte. And they were Frank even, and Mike. Frank and Mike in the morning, you know, uh, legends in, in the broadcasting business, especially in the Bay Area. And then on the weekends, KBR was playing music. So there was a, it was a, it was a really kind of a variety station. And I think as, as, as sports stations started to really kind of take off, they added more and more programming to the afternoons, adding Radnich and Pete Franklin and uh, and even, you know, Rush Limbaugh was on KMBR from 9 oh, to yeah. noon every day oh, in the yeah. morning. So it started building, and next thing you know, you had a, tw- a, tw- a 24-hour sports station as the demand and, and kind of the the urgency for, for sports radio kind of really blossomed in the, in the 90s. So I started as KMBR there, and then I was, uh, I became the, I was Ralph Barbieri's producer for a while, and then I went to uh, uh, Scott Farrell. Farrell on the Bench started in around 94, and we that show was on from 10 to 1 at night. And what was interesting about that show, and not only was it the craziest show I had ever worked on, but the 11 p.m. hour, the middle hour of that show was simulcast on what then was called Sports Channel America right. and Sports Channel Bay Area. And that show really took off. Now, now you turn on the TV now, there are a dozen talk shows and sports talk shows that are simulcasting radio shows. But back then... It was it was pretty much it. It was it was a novelty. Gary Radnich was on Bay TV 
for his oh, yeah. two hours a day. If you remember that one? <laughs> yes. And then it was Pharrell at night on Sports Channel, and then the the Howard Stern show on the, on the E Network, and that <laughs> yes. was it. Yep. That, that was there were there were not a lot of sports radio simulcast, so that was a lot of fun, and and we had a chance to take the show national. So I moved down to L.A. I was down in Westwood One for about two and a half years until I found out about the job about becoming the sports director and executive producer of the ticket 1050 and ticket 1050 was the, uh, was a new sister station of KMBR. And with that, that station was completely different because not only was it going to be, uh, the flagship station of the Raiders and the Stanford Cardinal, our demo was going to be 18 to 34 year old males. Mm -hmm. So we were definitely trying to target younger now it's hard to say whether or not it it, it would uh, it would have succeeded completely because you know this is now starting to become late nineties ninety seven so the dot com era is really really blowing up here and a lot of streaming audio is starting to emerge and and AM radio for maybe the younger demo may or may not be more of a challenge to do but we, I thought we did our best for for what we had so I did that for about two two and a half years until like. Signed on and did. Uh, I was over at Clear Channel over in San Francisco, and I was doing stuff for KNEW and CNET Radio and Cable uh, 960. And then uh, my friend, who was doing the uh, producer engineer job for the Giants, Raul Velez, uh, who had taken over for a little bit while for for Lee Jones, called me and said, "Hey, are you interested in doing the kind of gig that I do for the Anaheim Angels?" Wow. And I said, well, Raul, I, I don't have any, I, I haven't had any, um, you know, experience doing this stuff. You know, I produced a couple of remotes here and there over my years, but I've never fully done a producer engineer role. He goes, don't worry, DC, you got it. No, I, no problem at all. Here's the he needs contact. So in the course of about two to three weeks, I made my contacts down with the angels down in, down in Anaheim. And I was off to spring training in Tempe, Arizona, not knowing anybody, not having any equipment on me. Uh, they had some stuff, and I, I somehow got through it. I, I don't know how I did it. So this would have been March of 2001. And, and what I thought was going to be a six-month job turned into be, to become a full-time job down with the Angels, who were on the radio station uh, AM 570 KLAC down there. And they were also the flagship station of the LA Lakers. So the executive producer of the of KLAC calls me in, in August, says, Hey, DC, you're doing a good job with the with the Angels. What do you have planned in the off season? I said, Well, I don't have I don't know. I'm thinking about maybe going back to to, you know, San Francisco or heck, maybe I'll be a jungle cruise skipper at Disneyland doing something <laughs> I want to do. And then uh, he says, Well, how would you like to do the how would you like to do the Lakers? He, I said, well, it's interesting. How much travel is there? He goes, well, no travel, just the games at Staples Center. I said, all right, well, I'm interested. And then so that became a gig that I would do in the offseason for about 17 years, as long as I did the Angels. So I was down there for a while, and then, you know, here we championships. come. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, so I was, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be Chick Hearn's last radio engineer, and, you know, that, that was a thrill uh, to working with a Hall of Famer like him. And then uh, in, in, I was there during the whole Shaq-Kobe drama. I was there for what I thought was the greatest team I would ever see when, when Shaq and Kobe teamed up with Gary Payton and Carl Malone and, I, and, and Rick Fox. And, and I, I, I mean, the celebrities that were showing up to those games. <laughs> A-plus listers. You just wouldn't believe it was the place to be. It was the place to be seen. And it was 
it was just a lot of fun doing that. So uh, that's kind of, in, in a nutshell, <laughs> right there, that's that's how my L.A. Uh, end of it, it stopped. And my, my friend Lee Jones, back with the Giants, alerted me that he was retiring. And so when the Giants position opened up, uh, I decided we were going to get the family going up and get try to try to go for the job. And I got the job, and uh, I, I kind of fulfilled a, a, um, a lifelong dream of working on Giants broadcast from the booth end of it. Uh, I had bored up tons of games, for the, you know, in the '90s for the Giants through through uh, through KMBR, but this was uh, an opportunity for me to come home. And uh, you know, the team had won three championships since I'd been gone, uh, and it was an opportunity to work with some of what I regard as some four of the greatest broadcasters in all of baseball. And I'm not just saying that because I'm working with them, but I believe that before I even took the job and, and people around baseball also feel the same way too. It's not, it's not the world's greatest secret that these guys are top of the game. So it's been, a, it's been a thrill doing it. Uh, I, I, I have such a great time uh, doing it. It's been a thrill. And, you know, once we get things back to normal, get the fans back in the stands, I, I just can't wait because the energy is, is, is not obviously close to what it should be. Um, doing doing the games, uh, you know, via kind of, and, and you, I know we'll get into this, but how we did it last year with with right. every game being called from the booth at Oracle Park. Yeah, no, I definitely want to ask you about that, but to kind of circle back because we're both radio nerds, so you know, you're talking about Pharrell on the bench, and I'm just wondering, like, how many beers did you have to pour a day <laughs> from the board? <laughs> We had, I had a, uh, back then we were using carts before we went to Westwood One, we started using the digital 360s and I had different beers. We had beers, we had the rapid fire six packs. We had a rolling out the keg sound effect, but the beers, oh, they really took off. That, the give me a beer thing was just wild. That, that and, was, that was a lot of fun. And then the juggling, <laughs> he's just oh. juggling while he's taking calls. <laughs> juggling and decorating the studio. And I'll be honest, it wasn't the greatest radio in the world during that one hour simulcast because it was more geared toward TV. Yeah. We had the hockey lights going off and the, uh, he had a, a down in LA, somebody created a, a, a hockey mic. Um, kind of crazy, but it, it, here's a funny story. It, it got so wild at the 11 p.m. hour. That when we went, we we hit midnight. We were off the air on Sports Channel. Pharrell is so burned out; he is sweating from head to toe. He needs to dry off. He, it looks like he had just you know run a run a marathon. He goes, DC, just 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 play just play the just play the Black Album. Just play it. So I, I put on a CD and. Metallica Black Album would come on and we'd probably roll sometimes maybe two or three tracks. Oh, wow. Just to start it off. And then the hotline would ring and the program director, Bob Agnew, would call. He goes, he goes, what is this? I said, I'm trying to get him on right now. I, I, can't, I can't get him on right now. He's, he's out of breath right now. He goes, you guys are playing the entire album right now. I said, I know. We're, we're going to get on it right away. So I'd hang up, get on the talk back. Hey, hey, Scott, Agnew just called. We got to get back on, man. He, got, he goes, oh, oh, so we got through it. All right, so let's start taking calls. So that, that's kind of how we, how we got through it. But, man, those, those years, I look back on them. I, and, and granted, I was in my 20s. I had a lot more energy. Nowadays, I, I could not keep up with that. So uh, Scott's still working, right? Like Scott's still doing stuff. I, I mean, I see his name out there every once in a while. 
Yeah, it's uh, CB- he was with CBS Sports Radio, and now he has signed on with a new network. Uh, I forget what the name of it, um, but he's he's got a station in San Diego, but he's still on on a on a sports network. Uh, you know, it's funny we lost contact with each other when I left uh, his show in '97, and uh, two years ago we we kind of reconnected for the first time while he was down in San Diego uh, on a little break, and the Giants were down there playing the Padres. So we met at the game, and it was it was kind of surreal to see him. Because because, I, like I said, it felt like a previous life that we had we had worked together and we had become what I thought was just a phenomenal team that just eventually just kind of grew apart. And so, to this day, I, I still I'm so proud of all the work I did with Pharrell. But it it was it was completely different for me, especially what from what I do now. All right, so I want to ask you about Ralph. Obviously, Ralph is a, is a legend uh, in this area, and you know he passed away a little while ago. I think you know people when they think about KMBR, they they do think about Ralph because he was with the station for so long. I'm gonna tell I want to tell you something that I witnessed in the studio uh, between Ralph and uh, and Bob Fitzgerald. So you remember when Fitz became the Warriors play-by-play guy. He, uh, Greg Papa was kind of in a, in a contract negotiation and Fitz and his lawyer kind of, I mean, his agent kind of came under and was like, hey, you know, Bob's already doing the backup game. He's already the backup guy. Like, you know, he, he, he can, he'll, he'll, he'll do it all. And, and he's not going to cost as much as Greg costs. <laughs> right. and, and, and so, you know, cause they were friends and that was kind of a big deal. And so, a big story uh, back then. yeah. And so I, I, Come, you know, it's a Friday. I'm pretty sure it's a Friday. Uh, I leave my day to day and I drive into the city. I, I, my day to day was in Mountain View. So I, I leave at like, you know, 3.15, 3.30 just to try and get to uh, the studio as, as quickly as I could. I forget what time my shift started, like six or seven, but I just, it just would make sense for me to go early because or else I'm just stuck in traffic the whole time. And so, uh, I, I go in and I, I, it's like, I walk in and it's one of those things where sometimes you like, you walk in a door and you're like, am I really supposed to be here? Because they're, they're playing commercial and Ralph, I don't, I don't want to even try and remember exactly what he said, but he was talking to a couple of people in the room going like, can you believe, you know, Fitz took that job like amazing i can't believe he did that or he would have done that and so then fitz comes in and i'm the one who's i'm you know screening calls for him so i'm i'm in there and in the you know in this commercial time he's pissed at ralph for even mentioning that there's any problem with him taking this job so i'm just like going like oh my god like (laughs) like these you know these two guys who one has to feed into the other you know one has to uh transition into the other show and they're not nice and, and good and you know when the, when the mics are on and then mics are off and it's like icy yeah. in there i was like oh my god <laughs> uh, hey, Garrett, can you go in there and give him this read <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and like um i think i don't know if this was the same night but fitz was upset at something and i screened a call and i missed you know there was a goofball troll and he got past me and fitz was usually really nice to me but it was like the one time where he was on edge and he kind of laid into me a little bit mm-hmm. uh but like you know the, I, I always i only had good experiences with bob and obviously bob you know people people have their uh their opinions about him as a as a warriors announcer but when i was at cambier he was always really nice to me um you know he puffed his chest out a little bit but i mm-hmm. was i always really liked him uh 
I didn't really get to know that many of the other guys. Like I talked to Tolbert a little bit. Radnich would come over and he'd read the paper and he'd ask me questions about what I wanted to do. And yeah. he was very nice as well. But it, I was kind of just like Fitz's guy. But I was also uh, the weekend guy with uh, Townsend and, and Kruger. So I, I get you know, I was kind of setting you up because I wanted to know, you know, what your memories of, of Ralph and, and if you got to work with him and also being a fan of you know, of KMBR, you heard so much of his work like you have any stories about ralph yeah well i when i started my internship at, at kmbr uh in fact I, I actually can name the date because my first day of reporting it was i believe game three of the alcs between the red sox and the a's and i remember the matchup i believe is i think they had separated time or it was it may have been Game Three, but it was Stewart, it was one of those classic Dave Stewart versus Roger Clemens matchups that seem to happen every year. At and the time. Stu would always win. <laughs> always, always had his number, man. <laughs> so you know, so this is the fall of 1990, and my first assignment, I walk into the sports office. Now I don't know anybody. I'm 19 years old, and uh, Pat Olson, the 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 sports producer, uh, sports director at the time, he goes, "Hey, I got it. He's, I got he's a- the one who hired me for my interview. okay. Well, there you go. Then that's, yeah. that's another uh, yeah. connection between." you and I uh, yeah. he goes uh, hey um he got, I got an assignment for you and I said uh, okay what what is it he goes your first assignment is you're gonna go up to Ralph's house and you're gonna pick up his column so his column what are you talking about well Ralph it turns out was writing a column for the Chronicle once a week it was called the mm-hmm. razor's edge and basically he was giving out like uh, picks NFL picks so he'd be like uh, you know the, the, he'd write a column and it, and and it would be like oh, I like the Packers over the, the you know Tampa Bay and Packers minus nine. And this is why. So he like yeah. three games and and uh, so I said all right. He goes hey, he lives. This is back when KBR down was was over at Fisherman's Wharf. Uh, and so he goes it's and so Pat tells me he goes it's just right up the mountain. So right up the mountain. What are you talking about? So it, it was he lived on on top of. Uh, North Beach, North Beach. He had a view. Uh, he, actually, he lived right next to Coit Tower. He had a phenomenal view from like uh, you could see Alcatraz to the Bay Bridge. And uh, so I climbed. I mean, it felt like I climbed two hundred stairs to get to this place. <laughs> now, I don't know Ralph. I've, I, obviously, I've listened to KMBR all my life growing up, and I knew Ralph and never met him in person. So I ring the doorbell, and Ralph answers the door in this white bathrobe. And I go, this is like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He goes, uh, he, he goes, yeah. he goes, you Chan? I said, yeah. He goes, all right, so what I need you to do is fax this to the Chronicle. So he hands me like four pages on yellow legal paper. And he goes, faxes to the Chronicle, uh, you know, this, here's the number. And he writes the number on the sheet. And I look at the sheet and it's got chicken scratch on there. It's oh like my God. I, he, his handwriting was unbelievable. I, I, <laughs> he he had what I guess you, a lot of old school journalists, right? With, with like kind of the shorthand kind of deal. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, so he he had, it was four pages of just like, it was like a, it was like a manifesto or something. <laughs> it was just, I, I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll fax it up. And I'm walking back to the station i'm looking at it i'm like uh, you know first of all it didn't dawn on me this was like not even like a cameo i was basically being a gopher here for something that was not even station related but then back then i had to fax it and i'm thinking like how is the chronicle some poor some 
poor schlub like the equivalent of me over the Chronicle <laughs> probably needs to read this off a fax machine and transcribe it into a computer. So I don't know how he was able to pull that off. So we, we, that was my first meeting with Ralph. And over the years, we, we, what happened was Dennis Higgins was the uh, evening board op for, for KMBR, for, for Ralph's show. And Dennis got minor league baseball jobs, announcing jobs. He got his first job doing the, uh, I believe it was the Helena uh, Brewers. He went on to do the Eugene Emeralds. Uh, so Higgy and I are, are longtime fans, and he, he trained me on the board. He goes, he goes, he goes, DC. When you, when I go for minor league baseball, do you want to take over for me? Now he was, it wasn't his decision, so to speak, but it was like he, if he had trained me and put me in the right spot. I could take over from that. And, and I said, sure. And I was in college, a summer job. Perfect. I would do that. So I was, I was board hopping and producing Ralph's show more or less during, for the afternoons. And I, I was, I was doing that. And I was, that was a lot of fun getting to know Ralph. So we hit, Oh, right before Pharrell, this is, uh, the 93 season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, well, well, actually back up just a little bit. One of the big stories in the early 90s, or there were several, but one of them was the ballpark initiatives to get the Giants a new ballpark in San Francisco and or the South Bay. So, and that was Ralph's passion. I mean, he literally was, you know, one of the biggest Giants fans of all time, and that that was his lifeblood. So, you know, every day we we hit, we talk to people on the know, and you really get the insight and the latest scoops on and what's what's going to happen with the ballpark vote. So, uh, Ralph Ralph's passion was just phenomenal, and then so when the team was kind of saved. At the last minute, at the end of the 92 season by uh, Peter McGowan and, the, and that this current ownership group, um, that was just one of the greatest stories that we had ever, ever worked on at, at KMBR, obviously. Mm-hmm. Not just being the flagship station, but just because it was a great Bay Area story that the Giants were going to stay in San Francisco. And then they go on in 93 to have uh, a phenomenal season. They, they signed Barry Bonds, and they... Hired Dusty Baker to become the new manager, and it becomes a great story that this team starts taking off, and it's leading the the NL West. Now, around August or so, I let Ralph know that I'm heading up to Reno for the weekend, and I say, uh, "Hey, Ralph, do you want anything while I'm up there?" Now, the Giants by now were probably six games up. Uh, over second place, whoever that was at the time, the Giants were just rolling. There was there was there was a special team, uh, and then he he goes, yeah, I want to give you, I want to give you some, uh, I want to give you something to put on put on the Giants to win the pennant. I said, okay, uh, that's fine, that's fine. He goes, what? I said, I just let me know by Friday. So he comes in Friday. And he hands me, and I'm not going to disclose the amount of money, but let's just say it was a, it was a significant amount of money for me, especially. And I'm gonna I'm gonna carry that up and and put put the put it. Uh, he wanted me to call him to let him know what the odds were of the Giants winning the pennant. So I get up to Reno that night. The next morning, I call him. I say, "Hey, Ralph, uh, Giants are six to one right now." He goes, six to one. Put it all on six to one." I said, all right. So get him the ticket, come back to the station on Monday afternoon, hand him the ticket. And then the season continues, and the Giants are doing well. And then the Braves sign Fred McGriff right before the trade deadline. Yep. And the Braves start taking off. 
And this is when the Giants and Braves were still in the NL West, same division. And next thing you know, it's starting getting a little hot here. <laughs> now, we have a thing in the, in the, in the station and in, in radio stations, and you, you would know, Garrett, radio stations between the glass, between the producers, the board ops, the announcers, there's all kinds of stuff, all kinds of paperwork hanging between the two studios. You'll see oh, yeah. anything from phone numbers, right, to reminders, things that you need to promote, all kinds of stuff. So what I did was I started putting the Giants magic number up. <laughs> And I put the Giants magic number up. I think I started at around 30 or something. And Ralph would see it every day. And every time the Giants would win and a second place team would lose, we'd lower that number by two. And and then all of a sudden the Braves signed McGriff. And next thing you know, that piece of paper doesn't get changed quite uh. that often as much as possible. And he goes, Chan, you're going to jinx this. You're going to jinx this. You, I'm not even going to say the word. He, he, <laughs> he, he, he was a bad, a bad word. He, you're going to jinx this. And next thing you know, what happens? The Giants win 103 games, and the Braves win 104 games. Came down to that last game down in that Dodger Stadium. Solomon Torre got lit. Oh, Oh, just lit. And it's still to this day that the Rockies went 0-13 in their expansion year. They went 0-13 against the Braves. So uh, that entire season, and so uh, 103 games should be able to get you into the playoffs in, the, in normal circumstances. And that was the last year that there were two divisions in each league, and that was the last year that there was no wild card. So yep. Yep. it was a phenomenal race. But uh, and that's one of my great Ralph stories. Uh, there's there's a bunch of others, but those are the two that are really started off my career. <laughs> yeah, Ralph would have cashed out. He would cash out really big. Let's wow. put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. He would have um, so, uh, so, I mean, I could talk about this stuff all day with you, but I actually wanted to talk about your job last year because of the pandemic and how it changed. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much difficulty it added, but uh, basically, like, you were one of the unsung heroes here to make everything work because I know that, you know, having to deal with all of the announcers. And then I know that there was also an additional, um, you know, Dave Fleming was, was pretty vocal about how hard it was to call the version of the game that you had to watch on TV when, you know, when the, the, the giants were away and you're, you're like waiting for ESPN to come back to commercial from commercial and you miss something. So you can't even call it like you're just waiting for it. So explain like the difficulty and a lot of the things that, that uh, you had to do differently because of the pandemic? Well, uh, it, it, it was about a year ago. Uh, everything was obviously normal. We would normally do uh, uh, f- f- about 13 spring training games, and I would usually do the first weekend of games down in Scottsdale. So uh, that was that was completely normal. And then once the... Uh, uh, the pandemic started really taking off in the middle of March and, the, and all the all the sports complexes getting shut down. Everyone was told to go home. We were kind of limbo. We didn't know what was going to happen. So I would be on Zoom calls with my, my fellow colleagues from around the league and kind of pick each other's brains and try, you know, what are you hearing? What's what's going to happen? Is this season going to be canceled? What, what's going to what's going to what's what's happening? And no one would ever have the definitive answer. And uh, so we'd go a couple months with this. And eventually, uh, it was agreed upon to do a 60 game season and there would be no traveling at all for any broadcasters. So how are we going to do all these road games? Because the home games were going to be 
pretty much straightforward. You can the game's gonna be in front of you. You're gonna have your normal TV feeds in the booth, no problem at all. But the road games were gonna be a challenge. You know, you didn't want to put the announcers in a position where all they were gonna be able to do is call a game off of the TV with just a single shot, because it just it can be done, but it's just not fair to the announcers to be able to give the listeners a true representation accuracy on what's happening on the field yeah and just just so just to so people kind of know what you're talking about like for instance if you see an outfielder shading in and you see the ball which looks like a deep shot like it 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 makes your call a little bit more predictable it's probably getting over the guy's head you're Mm -hmm. probably pretty safe getting excited that this is going to be a hit and 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 flip the other way right if the defense is playing back that same drive you call it a little bit differently because you know where the outfielders are so that's kind of just wanted to let people know kind of a little bit more what you were talking about but go ahead you're absolutely right and and what it is is it's by baseball you're not necessarily always the it's everything that's outside of the action because on tv you're going to be able to follow the action for the most part but it's the other things that set the the picture for the listener as you have to know where the defense is shifting where the batter standing in the box uh what what signs are being relayed from the third base coach do you notice all these little things that you take for granted because you're there calling the game from what you see in front of you that stuff is out the door if you're just going to get one shot for these road games so what baseball developed over maybe in speedy fashion maybe i would want to say in a two-week period was they created a system where everyone would call the games from their home ballparks and the road team would f- the the team so so let's say the Giants were down in L.A. The Dodgers would send the broadcast up to our truck here in San Francisco, and we would get multiple camera angles and audio from Dodger Stadium. Now, what those camera angles and views were, it was debated as to what they should be, and to be quite honest, it was not consistent throughout the entire season. It just mm. changed uh, based on each ballpark and depending on what the director wanted to send out. But the general standard was you would get the full program mix. So basically anything that you would see at home as a listener, uh, as a viewer, you would see that in a booth. We would also get something called the all nine. So this was a locked on camera that was behind home plate, usually in the upper deck, shooting foul pole to foul pole. This is what allowed people to see whether or not a runner was taken off from any of the bases, if right. the infield was in a shift, the outfielders were playing deep or in. Uh, all those little nuances that we talked about a little bit uh, ago, th- those aided in the announcers being able to call the game. The problem with these, uh, with the all nine, uh, despite it being in high definition, was you you could see the the people in the field, but you ne- didn't necessarily were able to tell like. You couldn't read numbers or names mm-hmm. on the back, so that provided some of the, some a little bit more challenges. And then there was another thing called the multi view. The multi view is was was a was a was a feed that had nine different shots inside there, and there was one of each bullpen. And then there was a camera shot of the scoreboard. There was a camera shot of like third base, another shot from first base. So uh, it, and that that part of it uh, was a variety. Uh, you didn't know what you were going to get each time. And then also you would get separate audio channels too as well. What made it really tough off the bat for us to get used to was that we didn't have NBC Sports Bay Area doing the first couple games with us when the season started. 
the Giants were playing at Dodger Stadium for the first four games, and three of the first four games were on national TV. So for us to get national TV, whether we're on Big Fox or ESPN, uh, the problem was getting those particular feeds over to us and having them sync up with the audio. Because what would happen is you'd hear the pop of the glove or the crack of the bat, maybe a second before even seeing it on on your our feeds and video. So they were not synced up. They were that was a, an ongoing issue throughout the sixty games for all major league teams. So teams had to invest kind of in delay units, and it was up to us to to create the delay and and uh, and to match up the audio with with the with the video. Because the last thing we wanted to do, especially with, as an announcer, either John or Dave is that you're calling a game and you're hearing, you know, a bat crack and then the pitcher's just into his windup. So that's going to throw everything off. So that's that was the that was the the, the challenge of broadcasting these road games. And the the other thing that people like wanted to talk about was how the crowd, the crowd sounds um, of how, how that was going to be handled because there were no fans allowed in the stands. So how are we going to replicate that? And now, before the 60 game seasons even started, people, there was debate about what teams were going to do um were we going to have all the audio produced uh locally by by ourselves in the booth were we going to play uh, audio now because of that what i did was i started getting audio not sound from games from 2017 mm. or, or in 2018 and i was i was picking up i was originally i was just going to get like you know crowd murmur uh crowd on base hits crowd uh after a home run you know that kind of stuff because we didn't know how we were going to do this so it was it was interesting as as we went along here i started dissecting the audio and i noticed and this is kind of weird to think about but i started noticing crowds sounded different for day games at oracle park than they did at night games at oracle park Hmm. And I said, well, uh, I have the time. I guess I could be a little more specific in terms of like isolating the sound and maybe could record the sound. So a Friday night crowd at Oracle Park sounds a lot livelier, a lot ju- more jubilant than, say, a Sunday afternoon game at the ballpark. It just is. Sunday's a lot more you know, laid back. And so I said, well, maybe we could just replicate this and, and really get, it, get really specific with what we're going to do. And then. In the course of putting that all together and, and getting sounds, it was the, decided that every ballpark around the majors would supply the crowd ambience. They would supply the cheering and 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 whatnot. So I didn't have to do that. In hindsight, I, I was kind of like I was kind of like oh, I kind of want to do that. That would have been kind of a fun <laughs> challenge. And then as the season went along, and I was like, man, I'm glad I didn't do that because that would have been a lot more work. <laughs> a lot yeah, more, yeah. Right, knowing the right the right cheer at the right time for for things like that. So that's how we did the audio. Some places were were phenomenal. I, I will say Oracle Park for our Giants home games. Our stadium PA, the person in charge of of putting the crowd sound together, was did a great job. We get to some places like Petco Park or down in Arizona. Boy, you, the, the music, the walk-up music for the players. <laughs> oh, it was it was it would blast so loud, and then all of a sudden it would go away. And in some ballparks, they have they feel there's an obligation to play music between every pitch, and that became annoying. So yeah. It became it became just as much as a mixing job, more so than ever during this past season. Wow! Now, I mean, it sounds like you know you sort of had to 
kind of visualize what you had to do because there was no template. There was no blueprint for how to deal with, you know, this type of thing. But uh, you guys, it sounds like you guys did a really good job. Now, I will say I, most of the time I watched uh, on the TV side, so I wasn't really listening as much on the radio side. But uh, the chemistry between the broadcasters, I thought was really, really good. Like, you know, they're all professionals. They're all great. So I expected it to be good. But what did you think about, uh, you know, because people are in their own booths, correct? Like they're they're uh, they're not in the same booth together. So they, they kind of how, how did that whole thing work? Well, it took about three days for me to just uh, to, to wire up the booth. So we had to separate each announcer in different booths. So left to right facing the field, I was in the same booth as, as Dave Fleming to the booth to our right, which would be the visiting TV booth. I put John Miller in there. And then to the right of him would be Dwayne Kuyper doing the TV broadcast. And on the far right of him in another booth in our fourth booth was Mike Kruko. And so, you know, Kruk and Kipe, they do a pregame show uh, with me every game, and then they join us for the wrap for every game as well. So they're part of the broadcast, and anytime we had a national game, Kruko would, would join us uh, on, on the radio as well. So the challenge was we had to keep everybody as normal in terms of the, the broadcast, uh, at least programming on the air. But how are we going to do this when we don't have everyone in the same booth, so to speak? Because in normal times, after the game, for the rap, as you've probably seen on TV, all four guys are in the booth. We're all crammed in together, shoulder to shoulder for the most part. Not with distancing. Everyone was just kind of separated as far apart as we could. So each booth had to be individually wired so that they could broadcast, they could hear. And then I also had to set up a talkback system where I could talk to them off the air. They could talk to me off the air um, so, you know, from different booths. So that that was the challenge in itself. Um, very different, very different. Um you know, with, with when things are normal, when we did the Bruce Bochy show, uh, I'd go down to Bochy's office every day and drop off a recorder for John to uh, to do the Bochy show right, right in the office about, you know, a little later after I, sh- after I come in. And that's how we would record the show. And John would just record it, you know, and we'd edit it together for the most part. But with with the way things, COVID sep- separation, you know, we were tier three uh, credential uh, people, we could not access the field or at, at any part 24 hours a day. We just could not be down there. So the challenge was, well, John's not going to be able to do a Gabe Kapler show in person. Right. So we're going to have to do the show via Zoom. We're going to have to record this somehow and, and to make it to make it so that it's somewhat accessible. So to fast forward, what we ended up doing was Gabe would we'd set up uh, the our, the Giants PR person, Matt Chisholm, would, would contact me and say, what time do you want to do the show today? I said, well, we're free anytime after or whatever. And then he'd be like, all right, Cap's ready at, at 1.30 in the afternoon. I said, I text John and we're like, all right, 1.30 today. So at 1.30 in the afternoon for a 7.15 show sometimes, for, seven, for a 7.15 game or 6.15, whatever, we do the Gabe Kapler show. And it was basically a three-way Zoom call that I would record onto an audio uh, audio editor and I'd record the whole show. And then we, after we were done with Cap, we'd, we'd 
you know, put it together and take out any of the delay between the uh, any of the, the the talking and just kind of clean it up a little bit. Became, but that became a daily thing. So what became something that was in person every day, sometime recorded even during batting practice with Bochi, became something with Cap where we were recording it via Zoom every day. And I, sad to say, I think it's going to be that way for this upcoming season for at least right. the first half. Right. Uh, I, I just think there's going to be a little more separation still until everyone is you know kind of vaccines are spread out and things are looking much better so uh i've, I've kept you a, a long time here so we'll get out of here in, in a second but i guess uh when it comes to the season and the team like i know you're uh you grew up a giants fan so so this is, is really cool for you but is there um an archive of stuff that when you have a little bit of time you're like wow i've always wanted to find this sound this uh old play-by-play cut this old giants jingle because you're you're you know you're that old school uh, fan of radio too so i mean have you have you when, when you have some free time are you able to dig into the archives and find stuff like how is all that stuff kept uh, all the old stuff you know from like the early 80s like giants hang in there and, and all that stuff Oh yeah, that that's the stuff that I grew up on. Uh, in the '80s, the Giants had marketing slogans that were just phenomenal, like the "Hang in there" and "You gotta like these kids." And they had all these like little these sung jingles that I would hear every day during baseball season. And these are songs that I they're in, you know they're ingrained in my head to this day. And and I thought you know a couple of years ago I was like I kind of want to do I want to I want to find some of those old jingles. So you know I, I first took to our our library at the station, and some of them were kind of hard to find because they just didn't keep a lot of games back in the 80s. So I was looking for some stuff on YouTube and I, I did discover some of the jingles there. And then lo and behold, as I was going through some of the ar- archive giant stuff, I, I would find a couple of old reel the reels that had the old jingles. Take a giant step and go and, uh, you know, the Hum Baby songs. Uh, oh, yeah. It, I feel good. I feel good. It, that stuff brought me all back. So it gave me all these, you know, great, great, you know, nostalgic memories and, and feelings as I was listening to those. Um, so I, I'm happy to, to have found those. I, I think they've kind of been dropped and you know, people in our age, they remember them vividly. Yeah. The, uh, the, those songs. Um, in terms of things I, I have, I haven't found, uh, I, I have found a bunch of old giant stuff that's just uh, fantastic. Um, you know, just recently, we found the complete unedited version of the Brian Johnson uh, walk-off uh, home run game uh, in the late late nineties. That that's been one of the most famous uh, Giants games of all time. So. That one we didn't have the complete uh, game for uh, because when we had the highlights, everyone hears the call, but we didn't have that full game until recently. So hopefully we'll, we'll be able to, uh, you know, play that at some time. But over the years, we, we've uh, I've been able to collect through Lee Jones and John will have some of these as well. Is uh, the a lot of classic? We probably have about a dozen classic Willie Mays calls wow. over the years. Yeah, the the the, the, the home run calls from uh, Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons when Mays, you know, heck, when when Mays scored from first base on a bunt by by Willie McCovey. I mean, that that was that's phenomenal uh, to find that the four home run game in Milwaukee by Mays. Uh, just a lot of really cool old sound. And what I love about working with John is he's a big fan of old time baseball broadcasting. He's, oh, he's yeah. he, 
he is like an encyclopedia of, of announcing. And that's, that's no big secret, obviously, but it's, uh, it, it's something that's really cool because when I do come up with, like, when we, when we look at the game notes, we're like, oh, this date in Giants baseball, uh, you know, Willie McCovey hit three home runs in a game in Atlanta. And then somehow I'll find that archived sound and he'll be like, let's play it, let's play it. And then like, and, and if I can't find it, he'll try to find it. So it's really cool. It's, it's, it's old time. I, it's, it's a tip of the cap to, to the pass. And, I, and that's something that I really appreciate as a baseball fan. Well, man, uh, really appreciate you coming on. And like I said, you're you're kind of the unsung hero of this entire thing so that we as fans can listen to the game uh, like like we want to. And, and what's really interesting is and a lot of sports are, are struggling with this. Like, I don't find the visual of the current. Uh, pandemic baseball to be that interesting. So I'm more listening to Kruk and Kipe and just enjoying them. And that's kind of how I, I, I'm digging it. Right. Uh, but, you know, from the radio side, if you're listening to uh, a baseball game on the radio, you're already creating a lot of these pictures in your mind. So as, if the broadcast is solid and you can barely tell that anything is going on, like kudos to, to you guys for being able to do that, because that that's an amazing thing to be able to do for the fans. Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's that's really nice of you to say. You know, one thing we, we've we've constantly stated is. Everyone knows what's in play here. We're not trying to pull one over on people. We're not trying to fake anything that we know that people don't. They know what our limitations on our restrictions are. So the, we are, the goal is to make it sound as normal and regular as possible, where you just kind of get immersed. The great thing about radio, baseball on the radio, is that you don't have to sit and stare at the radio when the game is on. You're doing other things. You're sure. driving. You're doing household chores. You're doing other things. And, and the beauty is you're able to still follow the game along it, 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 no matter what what you're doing so it's it's a lot of fun and 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 we it's it's, it was a challenge last year but all in all i'm really happy with it but just to really emphasize what what has become really evident this season and this goes for all sports is the importance of fans in the stands you never you just kind of take it for granted there's going to be fans in there heck I remember listening to Giants games when there were 6,000 people in the stands at the stick. And I'll tell you what, it sounded like dead. It didn't sound like as dead as when there's no fans. <laughs> yeah. Look, players, players feed off of the energy off the crowd. It, yeah, it's, sure. There's no doubt. And, 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 and I think a lot of people this past year really finally saw that. Athletes, coaches, managers, broadcasters, other fans. It's harder to watch a sporting event or to observe it when it's a little more challenging because the fan energy is not there. And that goes for all the sports that we, that, that, that we follow from MMA to, to, to wrestling, to basketball. It doesn't matter. It, the fans are such an integral part of broadcasts and, and the, and the sports experience. Absolutely. Um, so what do you think about the season this year? As far as the team is concerned, they played, uh, I think they really smartly played that 60 game season last year. And the way that, that Kapler managed that team. They were competing all the way until the end. This season, at least we think, is going to be more a traditional season. Uh, what, what, you know, Padres are making tons of moves, Dodgers are the Dodgers, and the Giants are kind of sitting there a little bit in the middle. But what are your expectations? I, I, yeah, I tell you what, everything last year exceeded my expectations. And if you're a Giants fan and you, and you thought last year was a disappointment, I, I'd say that you 
set your bar up a little too high. The Giants exceeded their expectations. And, uh, you know, it's still going to be a little tough to overtake the West just because with the talent, like you mentioned, the Padres and the Dodgers are still the two teams to beat in the division. But the Giants are developing a system where everyone has, they say, trust the process. Farhan is is putting together a, 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 something that is brewing and with the right combination. I think I think Gabe Kapler and a lot of people learned a lot of things about this team last year. And it, 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 there were players that really took off that they had no idea if they were going to be hit and miss and move players around like like Mauricio Dubon, you know, went from a middle infielder to you know playing a ton of games out in center field, and think about the the, the everything that happened the Yaz and and Dickerson and and uh, heck, we played play a whole season without Buster Posey. Yeah, and you know people forget you know the team called up Joey Bart and uh, to kind of fulfill the. the the huge gap at, at catching position. When you have a veteran like Buster Posey, that's going to be able to to kind of mold Joey Bart. Now, I'm not sure if Bart's going to be on the major league roster to start uh, start the season, but this is something where a veteran person like Posey is going to be a phenomenal influence on a young guy like like Joey Bart. It, it's I, I can't begin to tell you how hard it is for, and, and I'm not you know breaking any. It's great insight here. It, the the Baseball is a tremendously difficult sport. Even the, the players at the, at the low minor league level were studs in high school and in oh, college. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a very, very, very difficult uh, sport. So you can't expect a guy, even with the credentials of Joey Bart, just to all of a sudden go to the major league level and just start knocking 20 home runs. It's just not that simple. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you again for hanging out with us. Uh, I, you know, I, when the season started, I was like, you know, when the season's over, I want to talk to you about this stuff because it sounds so crazy. You know, your job changed uh, as far as what you had to do. But uh, we finally did it. So very appreciative. And at some point, you know, I'm sure you're going to start being really busy again pretty soon here. And then we'll find some time to, to chat again because this was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, Garrett. Thanks for having me on, man. Good luck with everything. I love Thompson the Clark podcast, so it's been a thrill having uh, being on your show and 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 talking some baseball. And uh, heck, one day we'll talk some wrestling on the on, on in person when we see each other. Oh yeah, or I got to get you on the wrestling side of the podcast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I go right. way back there too. <laughs> exactly. All right, man. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks to DC for hanging out with us. All right, Brad. We're back to wrap up the show. I want to thank Darren Chan again for doing that. That was a lot of fun. When uh, when the when we're done with this pandemic, he and I are going to go <laughs> do some stuff together because we have well, so much similarity in, in 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 a lot of the things that that we grew up on. And you know, he did he actually lived out those dreams. Uh, I, I had a little bit of a dabble and just decided that I was better off doing what I was doing. But uh, well, you yeah. guys can come up to Reno and we'll uh, once this is all over, we'll sit in my den and we'll uh, we'll do a show and. Then we'll We'll go in the backyard and barbecue, have some beers and talk about... Uh, Play some wiffle ball. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Mm-hmm. But that was a cool trip down memory lane. I mean, I I had no idea that KMBR played music. Yeah. And then as I was listening to that, I thought, wait a minute. I think I might have remembered that on the weekends, like music leading into the games and putting on the radio in anticipation of a game starting. And then like, oh, okay, now here's the quick little, you know, 10 minute pregame show. And now we're in it with, uh, you know, Ron Fairley and Wayne Hagen. 
Remember exactly. those days? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, fairly. Oh my God. Yeah. Fair, uh, <laughs> getting getting Kevin Mitchell mixed up with Kevin McReynolds and yes. stuff like that. Uh, yeah. No, it was it was great because you know I, I I would like to say that when I was like fourteen, fifteen, I was out there cruising with the homies and <laughs> hanging out with the ladies. But that was actually not the case. I was like in my room listening to Giants baseball and probably having a video game on at the same time or whatever. And so a lot of my a lot of my youth was like literally listening to KMBR all day and then switching it over to 106.1 KML so I could hear the Battle of the Rappers <laughs> and the top, you know, the top eight at eight or whatever the that show yeah. was. I but yeah, so... It. No, go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say, I remember going to Giants games and getting the program uh, in the 80s and then getting the scorecard out of it. Oh, yeah. And sending it with my dad to his work to make a bunch of photocopies. And then I would get, uh, you know, like 20 photocopies of it and then listening to Giants games in my room and scoring the games. Yeah. And uh, that was like heaven for me. That was the, the most fun I'd ever had. <laughs> I have the 1984 All-Star Game program. Oh, nice. And we, uh, I started, so I was at the game with my dad and my uncle, and I started scoring the game, but I, that's the first All-Star Game that I can remember watching. And you know how in All-Star Games, they make so many changes. Oh, yeah. And so the book got so messy, like by like the fifth <laughs> inning, I was like, I quit. Like, I can't do this anymore. Done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still have a, I still have scorebooks from when I coached Little League and softball. So, uh, you know, I tried to get the kids to uh, have some sort of interest in scoring the games this summer. It didn't work so well. So, but I enjoyed it. I like doing it myself. So yeah, I yeah. still like doing it. I, I was uh, I was scoring scoring games in high school if I wasn't playing, yes. you know, to help yeah. out coach and to help out sort of scout, you know, to look at pitchers and, and help him figure out what to do. Uh, and then even when I played later in, uh, in you know, s summer ball and, and city ball and all that stuff, I was having to score game because no one would do it. And then, but then I would get my sister to come out because she would, she would score <laughs> the games for us. So, nice. uh, but yeah. All right. So that's going to be it for this week. We'll be back next week again. Just want to thank Darren again. Hopefully, We'll, we'll get him on, you know, maybe after this current season to see, you know, what the differences were and, and stuff with his Absolutely. job. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so we'll be back uh, next week. So for Darren and Brad, I am Double G. We will see you when we see you. Peace out. Peace.